0: Wildwood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. You would this morning please take out your Bibles and turn in them in the Old Testament to the book of Judges and chapter number 21 in the book of Judges. You have the first five books of the Old Testament, and then you have Joshua, then you have Judges. So Judges chapter number 21. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can find one under a chair in front of you, and in the front part of that, turn to page 198, and you will be at Judges chapter number 21. Now, while you're turning this morning, I want to share with you a very wild movie storyline. It's a movie about a well-muscled, majestic-haired Mr. Universe type who, after a pre-birth prediction of greatness, becomes the greatest avenger against the forces of evil in his day. With a sense of destiny, our hero grows into a man who is not afraid to stand alone. And with strength and fortitude, he will take on anything from wrestling a wild animal to facing a force of insurmountable odds single-handedly. Watch As he is rejected by the very people he tries to help, learn about his fatal attraction to the women he desired, marvel at the ultimate seductress who learns his secret and orchestrates his downfall, witness his heroic comeback against all odds, a comeback that will surprise and astound you. And I ask you, what movie line, storyline is this? Is this Hercules… Is it Terminator the prequel? Is it Rocky number 29? Uh, is it Iron Man 2 that just came out at the movie theater here recently? Well, most of you recognize that is not actually a movie storyline. It's an historical account of a real person. It's a drama from the Bible. It's about what I call the original Iron Man. Samson. And we're going to spend three Sundays looking at the saga of Samson. And this saga is highly intriguing. It's both fascinating and amazing and also, at the same time, strange and sad. Because in the saga of Samson, we see someone who is the physically strongest person ever, and yet he has a key inner weakness. He is someone who cultivated the exterior of his life, but ignores the interior of his life. In the saga of Samson, we see one who manhandles a lion and yet is manhandled by his own sexual passion. In this saga, we see striking victories, and yet we also see a man who becomes a victim of his own self-indulgence. In Samson, we see someone who's called by God to be a deliverer, but he ends up being delivered into the hands of his foes. In the saga of Samson, we see an avid, practical joker who becomes a laughing stock before his enemies. We see someone who amazingly makes the honor roll of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and yet who suffered an erratic spiritual walk in his life. Samson's saga is a saga that is a paradox, and yet it is a story impregnated with life's lessons, and we have the privilege of looking at it. Now, before we begin to move into it, I want to just say this very quickly. I believe that God wants to speak to some hearts today, and I'm just going to encourage you to be open to what he has to say. Now, the saga of Samson occurs in the history of Israel in the era called the Era of the Judges. and the Era of the Judges, and thus we have the name of the book, the nation was marked by a number of things. The nation of Israel was marked by a drift from God and a drift from the truth of God. The nation was marked by a deep pursuit of self and sensuality. The nation is marked by a culture that is infected with relativism. And if you have your Bible open to Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, the very last book, or the very last verse of the book summarizes the book. And notice this statement. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. And here comes the key summary statement. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This era that we're going to be taking a look at in which the saga of Samson comes from is an era that parallels, I think, our own. I mean, do not the attributes of Israel at this time sound vaguely familiar to you? A nation being marked by a drift from God and a drift from the truth of God. A culture that is into a deep pursuit of self and sensuality. A culture that is infected with relativism, where it seems like people just want to do what they want to do. And they don't want anyone telling them otherwise. Now, one of the things that's unique to the book of Judges in this period of history is to understand that there are seven cycles that occur. They actually repeat themselves in the book. Seven different cycles that happen with the people. And it begins at the top of that graphic you're looking at where the people of Israel turn from God. They drift from God. They're in rebellion against God. And thus, in turn, what happens is that God judges them by delivering the people to their enemies. And then, in response to that judgment, there is a response of repentance on the part of the people of Israel. The people turn back to God. They cry out to God, God, we need your help. We were wrong. And then that leads to God sending a judge to deliver them, to rescue them. And then there is, in this cycle, A period of rest, a period of peace that comes under that judge who is a leader. And then what happens is the cycle continues again, and the people turn from God. There's a drift. There is rebellion again. And you see this cycle, the same cycle goes around in the book of Judges seven times. Around and around we go. And when we come to the era of Samson, it's important to understand that is the seventh and final cycle that we see in the book of Judges. And the scene is set for us very, very clearly in chapter 13. So if you would turn over with me to chapter number 13 and look at the very first verse. This is going to be the seventh and final cycle as the nation goes through all of these cycles of rebellion and then God judges and then there's a cry out and then there's deliverance and then there's peace and then there's rebellion. This is going to be the last cycle. And notice in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now the sons of Israel, and then here's the key word, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now think of those cycles again going around. And this 40-year period of judgment and oppression is the longest of all seven cycles that Israel experiences. And as you look at this what's going to happen in this final cycle, there's something that is conspicuous by its absence, and that is, in this final cycle, there is no cry for repentance, of repentance by the part of the people of Israel. There is no call to God to deliver them. And you can look at chapter three, verse seven, chapter three, verse 15, you'll see this call of repentance and call for deliverance. But there's none of that in this seventh cycle. Why? I think the answer is that the people of Israel had grown acclimated and had assimilated into the pagan culture. Now they no longer saw the need to be delivered by God. And remember, Israel was God's instrument to reach the nations. And by this time, after going through these cycles over and over again, they had become acclimated. They had grown spiritually lethargic, spiritually apathetic. They were now embracing the sensuality of the pagan culture and the pagan community and embracing its immorality. And the nation of Israel at this point had lost sense of the call of God that he had given them to be distinct and to shine as light. Now, I think it's very important for us to understand that that is very much like our culture today. In fact, when I look at the church at large, I think at times in our culture, the church has fallen into the same trap. Over time, we've become acclimated and assimilated into the culture. You know, it's interesting. This has been true for more than a decade now, that the rate of marital divorce among those who claim to be born again, is exactly equal to that of the pagan world. We've just become assimilated into the culture. We're not distinct. Spiritually lethargic and apathetic is the way the church is moving in our day. And the truth of the matter is that many who are part of the church today would rather be wealthy and rather be popular than to be righteous and godly. Why is that? We become assimilated into the pagan culture. The church today more and more is embracing sensuality and sexual immorality. You know, you can see it today in, inside the church. Young couples who are living together outside of marriage. Listen, I've been around for a while. I grew up in the 60s, and that's when living together really was somewhat invented in our culture. But you didn't see it in the church like this. But you see, now we have the church becoming assimilated into the culture. You start looking at the movie habits of those who are in the church or the internet habits of those in the church, and you find they're not a whole lot different from those in the pagan culture in which we live. And so there's a lot to learn from the saga of Samson, a lot to learn. Now, something else happens differently in this seventh cycle. Not only does the nation of Israel, not cry out to God and said, we were wrong, we need your help, God. But the other thing that happens is God operates differently when it comes to raising up a judge. See, in the first six cycles, what happens is he raises up a judge, and the judge leads and rallies the people to fight back. But right now we have the nation of Israel, they're just apathetic. They're assimilated. They're acclimated into the culture. So they have no interest in fighting against the pagan world around them. And so what God does differently this time is he raises up a one-man army, what I like to call the original Iron Man, someone who is a combination of Hercules, Rambo, and Superman. And his name is Samson. So as we look at the saga of Samson, we're going to do it in three parts. First of all, we're going to look at his beginning And we see his beginning in chapter 13, verse 1, through chapter 14 and verse 3. We're going to look at that this week. And then in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at his exploits. We see them in chapter 14, commencing with verse 4, all the way through chapter 15. And then finally, we're going to look at his end in the saga of Samson. We're going to see that in chapter 16 from verses 1 to 31. So that's what we're going to look at as we tackle the saga of Samson. What we want to do today, though, is we want to look at his beginning. Now, let your eyes go back to chapter 13 and verse 1, when it talks about how the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines. Now, who are the Philistines? Well, the Philistines are a people that are opposed to all that God stands for. If you take the people of God and the things of God and you go to the opposite of that, you have the Philistines. And what is amazing is that God is using the people who are the opposite of the people of God to discipline the people of Israel. And you notice... Uh, in, in the next couple of verses, there is a man by the name of Manoah, and his wife was unable to have children. And so in verse 3, the angel of the Lord comes and appears to the woman and says, Behold, I know you are barren, and you shall conceive, and you shall give birth to a son. Now, you'll notice we have here the angel of the Lord, and it's important for us to understand in our study that the angel of the Lord is more than an angel. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So think about this situation. We have the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, making an appearance to this woman and saying to her, you will give birth to a son. And he goes on to say to her in verse 4, the angel of the Lord says, Be careful not to drink any wine or strong drink nor eat any unclean thing, for behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor will come upon his head. Why? For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now you'll notice... He says regarding this son who was to be born, he shall be a Nazarite. He didn't say a Nazarene. You know, a Nazarene is someone from Nazareth. What is a Nazarite? Well, if you want to study it more, you can go to Numbers chapter 6 because it describes there what a Nazarite was. A Nazarite was someone who took a vow of dedication and consecration to the Lord, it was a special vow of dedication and consecration to the Lord. And that vow included a number of items. Part of what was included in that, as you were consecrating yourself to the Lord as a Nazarite, is that you were making a commitment not to drink fermented wine, not to drink alcoholic beverages. Another thing that was involved in that vow of dedication was to not cut your hair. See, that became a public sign to people that you were consecrated to the Lord. And then another thing that was involved, among some others, in that vow was to not touch a dead body, something that was unclean. And so the message here from the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, was this, that Samson from his birth was to be an example of consecration to the Lord. People wanted to see what consecration to the Lord looked like. They would look at Samson. What's really interesting about Samson is what he does with that calling from God. As we follow the story, we're going to find out that he cultivates his exterior. Outwardly, he looks consecrated, but he chooses to ignore the interior of his life, the inward part of his life. And I just simply want to remind you, and I'm reminding myself of this. I mean, if there's anybody that needs to be reminded, it's me, and that is that God Is most concerned in your life and my life with our interior. God is most concerned in your life and my life with our heart. God is most concerned with what we are at our core. That's what He really cares about. See, with God, the issues are not so much the motions that we go through you know, the appearance that we give to one another of our consecration to the Lord. What he is really concerned about is our heart relationship with him. And I want to ask you the question as we look at the saga of Samson today. What is your heart relationship with the Lord this morning? Oh, not two years ago or two months ago, but today. See, that's what he's most concerned about. And for some of us, God really has a little message for us. Focus needs to change a little bit. Well, you notice it says there in chapter 13 and verse 5 that he would begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Remember, Israel had not repented. They weren't asking for help from God, and so their deliverance is not even completed until King David comes on the scene. But Samson will begin their deliverance. Well, what happens in verses 6 and 7 of the chapter is the woman who remains unnamed, who's the, the wife of, of Manoah tells her husband about everything that happened and, and what had occurred and you'll notice in verse 8 it says then Manoah entreated the Lord and said oh Lord please let the man of God whom you've sent come to us again that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born his prayer to God was teach us to teach our son And that's a common cry of godly parents to God. Teach us how to teach our children. And just this last week, when I had the privilege of officiating at my son's wedding down in Texas, I was just thinking back. The times Janet and I just prayed, God, teach us to teach our son. Well, it's interesting to see that this prayer God responds to in verses 9 to 15. And the angel of the Lord reappears. And uh, the wife comes and tells Manoah about all of it. And uh, basically he says to the Lord, hey, what's the boy's mode of life supposed to be and his vocation supposed to be in verse 12? And the angel of the Lord says, listen to what I told your wife. I told her what she needed to do. I told her what the calling was going to be. And then, uh, this is just interesting to me, how Manoah in verse 15 says to the angel of the Lord, and I hope you read scripture this way because it's just a little bit humorous at times, the way we respond. He says, please, let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. In other words, is saying, this is so exciting. Can I fix your goat steaks? Can we have a little grill out right here, right now? I'd like to do that for you. And then the angel of the Lord says, responds in verse 16. He says, you know what? If you're going to use a goat, there's a more appropriate thing you can do. How about doing a burnt offering to the Lord? And then in verse 17, Manoah asks this question of the angel of the Lord. He says, what is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord says back to him, verse 18, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful, as it says in the New American Standard. In the margin, it will say incomprehensible. The NIV says beyond understanding. Really, what Manoah was saying is, I want to know who you are, I really want to understand everything about you. And the angel of the Lord says, Wait a second, you really can't know me. I'm incomprehensible, I'm beyond understanding. I really believe what he was communicating to Manoah is that, listen, God operates in mysterious ways and so often is way beyond our understanding. Don't we experience that in life? Even when storms come through a town, you're wondering, I know God is sovereign and he's providential, but what's he doing with all this? And this is just a little flashing indicator to Manoah. I'm going to do some things, Manoah, that you're really not going to understand, I'm going to work in some very mysterious, incomprehensible ways. Well, look at verses 19 to 22. Manoah takes the young goat and he puts together this burnt offering to the Lord. And then in verse 20 it says, It came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven. Look what happens. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. I mean, you have to picture this. The flame goes up, and there goes the angel of the Lord right up into heaven. And notice it says in verse 21, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. He knew what was going on. And then Manoah says to his wife, we will surely die, for we have seen God. You just have to get the feeling of all this. They're talking to this guy. He lights the burnt offering. The flame goes up, and there goes the angel of the Lord. He goes, we have now seen God, and we are going to die. And you just have to understand the humor that God brings out in some of these stories. And I have to smile when I look at verse 23. Manoah's saying, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. And his wife said to him, come on. The Lord had desired to kill us. He would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would He have shown us all these things, nor would He have let us hear things like this at this time. And and men, this shows the importance of a godly wife. You know, we need her perspective. Value your wife. But Noah needed her perspective, and she delivered it. And then, of course, you come to verses 24 and 25. It says, then the woman gave birth to a son and named him, guess what, Samson. And the child grew up, notice this next phrase, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. Some key phrases. He's born and the Lord blessed him. And the Lord began to stir in him, began to work in him, began to empower him. Now, I want you to hit the pause button right here in the story and the saga of Samson. And I want you to think about something related to Samson. And that is that Samson was spiritually privileged. Samson had godly parents, his birth announcement was given by the Lord God Himself. Samson was blessed by the Lord. And Samson, especially when you compare him to most Old Testament saints, remember the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was not resident permanently in every believer. He was uniquely empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Yet, yet, despite having a good spiritual head start, That was not a guarantee of spiritual success in Samson's life. His good spiritual head start did not make him immune to stumbling into sin. And you say, well, why why are you making note of all this? The reason why I'm making note of all this is because at this point in the story, for some of us at Wildwood, that's our story. You see, many of you who grew up around this church grew up with godly parents. Many of you who've been around this church for a while grew up in a spiritual environment with dedicated spiritual leadership. And the Lord has blessed you. And some of you have come from other situations, and this would be true of you, growing up with godly parents, growing up in a spiritual environment and having the Lord bless you in many, many ways. But well, here's the strategic error that can happen. And that is, you grow up in that kind of environment with godly parents in a spiritual environment, and the Lord has blessed you in many ways. And here's the problem. It is very easy to maintain a spiritual exterior in fact, it's almost natural because you grew up in that kind of environment. It's easy to maintain the spiritual exterior and fail to cultivate the spiritual interior of their life. I've been here long enough. I've been here more than 30 years. I've watched people do this. Grow up with godly parents. Grow up in a spiritual environment. The Lord gave great blessings, and yet, because it's easy, the spiritual life is just lived on the outside and not on the inside. And what I've often seen people do is they start to spiritually coast, and you start to spiritually coast, and it's not very long after that that you dry up spiritually, here is the key to a successful spiritual life. Let me give it to you. The key to a successful spiritual life is to continue to cultivate a heart relationship with the living God. I need to be reminded of that. If you don't think it could be easy for me to start coasting, but the key to a successful spiritual life is to continue to cultivate a heart relationship with the living God. And Samson didn't do that. And the first sign of spiritual trouble that we see in his life comes in chapter 14 with his marriage. I want you to look at the first three verses of chapter 14. Then when Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines, he came back and he told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore... Get her for me as a wife. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised, the pagan Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. Now, there's a couple of things we need to clarify from these verses. The first one is, you may have noticed, is a little strange in our culture, and that is when he comes to his parents and he says, get her for me. Well, we need to remember that the Middle Eastern custom was that when it came to a marriage, a marriage was negotiated and arranged by parents. The second thing I want you to notice from these verses is it says that Samson saw a woman. A woman. And in verse 3, he says, She looks good to me. Now, literally, in the original language, these are the words that came out of Samson's mouth to his dad. Literally, he said, She looks right in my eyes. Is that not an echo of chapter 21 and verse 25? when it said, in those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, he says, she is right in my eyes. You know, I really believe that Samson was a superficial evaluator. And I want you to understand something here. Please don't misunderstand. God is not against physical attraction. He happened to make us as men and women in a way that we are attracted to one another. He's not against physical attraction. I was very physically attracted to my wife. God builds that into to the process. But that's not all that's involved in the process. And what it seems that we have here with Samson is what I might call lust at first sight. As you look at the verses, it does not appear that he even met this girl. And you want to just say to Samson, wait a minute now, okay, she looks right in your eyes. She looks good to you. But what about her character, Samson? What about her heart? What about the priority of her walk with God? Did you even think about that? In Proverbs chapter 12, in verse 4, it says this, a wife of noble character is her husband's crown. What it means is basically this, that when you have a wife of noble character, that makes you true royalty as a man. It's very important to understand we look not only on the exterior, but also on the interior. And Samson's focus was on the external rather than the internal. And by the way... If the she looks good to me is the best basis for marriage, then Hollywood would have the happiest marriages in all of the universe. But that's far from the case. Now, I know some of us have reached the time in our life when you are beginning to think about finding a mate. I want to talk to you if that's the stage of life that you're in. and I want to ask you the question, as you're thinking about finding a mate, What is your focus when it comes to the choice of a mate? And I just simply want to exhort you, encourage you, to go beyond they look good to me. To go deeper than they look good to me. And if you're in the process of looking for a mate, I simply want to say, don't follow the pattern of Samson. The other thing I want you to notice from these verses is that this woman in Timnah was a Philistine. And right away you're going, what? What? God's calling you, Samson, to deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines, and now you want to become an ally with the Philistine?" I think Gary Enrig summarizes this section very well when he puts it this way. He says, Samson headed home and broke the news to his parents. Well, Mom and Dad, I've seen the girl of my dreams. She looks terrific. That is the girl I want to marry. So will you go get her for me and make all the arrangements? Oh, I'm glad you found the girl the Lord has for you, son. Who is she? Well, she's a Philistine girl from Timnah." And with that statement, Samson's parents' world fell apart. His parents knew all about his miraculous birth and God's call for his life. And for years, they'd been praying for him that God would use their son to deliver Israel. And now their son, whom God had called to a life of separation and consecration, wanted to marry one of the enemy. And that was not only a betrayal of his calling, it was direct disobedience to the word of God because God had told his people not to intermarry with the pagan people who lived in the land, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. So immediately Manoah tried to talk some sense into his son. Is there not a single Hebrew girl you could marry? Do you really have to marry a Philistine girl? Does God's program not mean anything to you? Oh, Samson, you can't marry her. And Samson replied in a single sentence that tells an immense amount about the character of the man. Get her for me. She looks good to me. She's right in my eyes. By the way, the very first step that leads to spiritual catastrophe is one We make the clear choice to disobey God's word. It's the first step that leads to spiritual catastrophe. And you know, this is such an exciting and and humorous and different section of the word of God. There's a lot of irony in all of this. You know, here what happens is that Samson's eyes get him into trouble. And you're going to see as we go through this, that's going to happen several times for him. And the irony is that ultimately he ends up with his eyes being poked out. And how all that happens, we're going to look at as we look at the rest of the story, which will be in the weeks ahead. So you have to come back for that. We want to stop right here today, but there's some wild stuff ahead, all right? Now, I want to talk about some life application from this section of the Word of God, and it's going to involve three things. First of all, it's going to involve an assignment for you, and second of all, the life application is going to involve two life lessons I want to look at. So the first thing is an assignment, and here's the assignment for you. This next week, I want you to read Judges chapter 14, 15, and 16. Read it several times. Take a look at what's going on there. As I said, there's some wild stuff Ahead, But I want you to read. I want you to interact with it. I want you to become familiar with it. So your assignment is read chapters 14 to 16. And then, by way of life application, two life lessons. Here's life lesson number one, and it begins with a question. And the question is this. What influences a child to grow up and live a godly life? And I think there's a couple of dimensions of answer to that question, what influences a child to grow up and live a godly life. And the first dimension of an answer to that is a godly response on the part of parents. You see, if we want our child to grow up and live a godly life, we need, as parents, to live a life of spiritual integrity. I did not say spiritual perfection. If you wonder whether I'm... Close to that or not, just talk to my children. They will verify. We, we know none of us are going to be spiritually perfect. But we need to live a life of spiritual integrity. The godly response of parents is so important that we pray for our kids. That we model for our kids. That we instruct them and we train them and we counsel them. What influences a child to grow up and live a godly life? the godly response of parents. And so that's a challenge for, the, for us who are parents. We influence our kids. And I especially want to talk to those of us who are dads for a moment in this regard. Don't underestimate the power of a father to have a huge impact on their kids. Keith Myring, who's involved with an organization called Men's Life, has said this. As they've studied families, they've, they said that when only the mother in the family has an active relationship with God, really growing, really walking with God, when it's only the mother, there's only a 15, 1, 5% likelihood that the children will grow up to have an active relationship with God. But when the father has an active relationship with God, the percentage of the children growing up to have an active relationship with God goes up to 85, 85%. What influences a child to grow up and live a godly life? A godly response of the parents. But another dimension to that is a godly response on the part of a child. See, parenting makes a huge difference, but it's not all of it. And some of us here had a very good spiritual head start. But as an individual, and your child must do this, they still have to make choices. You don't inherit spirituality. And a good start is not a guarantee. And some of you parents who are blaming yourselves... And you're saying, I I guess I didn't do everything I should have done. Just remember, it should be a comfort to you. You play a part in it, but your child plays a part in it. They have choices they have to make. Just giving them a good start doesn't guarantee anything. And that, by the way, ought to be not only a comfort to parents, but a challenge to those of you who are younger. Just because your mom and dad gave you a good start doesn't guarantee anything. You have choices to make, which leads us to the second life lesson, and that is that spiritual privilege does not guarantee spiritual success. We see it in the life of Samson, and I've seen it in the lives of people I've watched over the decades. Just because you have spiritual privilege does not mean you are immune from stumbling into sin. And a verse I want us all to have a grip on is a verse that comes out of Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. It's on the screen here from the New Living Translation. This is the message I think God has for all of us. Above all else, guard your heart, the interior, for it affects everything that you do. Men and women, this is where the battle is won and lost, in the heart. Above all else, guard your heart for it affects everything that you do. In other words, the inner life that we live is to be the highest priority. And remember, the first step towards spiritual catastrophe comes when we choose to disobey the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the saga of Samson, and there's so many things to learn from this. But Father, the most important thing of all, and you're speaking to some of us right at this very moment, is that we haven't really been guarding our heart. It has not been a case of above all else, that's where our focus has been. Some of us have just allowed ourselves to play the external game, the exterior game, where people look at us and we look consecrated to the Lord. But the reality is we know that's not what's been going on in the interior. And we must guard our heart. And for some of us, we need to to refresh that in our life because it affects everything that we do. And Father, may we never forget that the very first step in spiritual catastrophe is choosing to disobey God's word. May we not be people who are foolish like Samson proved to be. Work on our hearts so that we can honor you with our heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.